Sabbath, we are ecstatic that you have decided to spend another winter morning with us as the air gets chilly outside. We hope that the warmth of the Spirit invade your heart, your body, but more importantly, your soul. Now, today we're going to look at the book of Deuteronomy in the New Testament, particularly focusing on a story that is well known and oft quoted by a lot of us believers. But before we get into the text, can we invite the presence of the Spirit to be with us? God, thank you so much for a time of reflection. It seems like we are inhabiting a season that is reflective. And so, Lord, we would pray that as we open the Word, not only to think about the presence of Emmanuel, but also to think about the implications of following and the Christ of Christmas, and you may be present in our conversation. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So let's jump straight into the text. I'd like to invite you to open your Bible, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read a couple places here through the passage, and then I'm going to stop and make some commentary, particularly as we link back to three primary spots in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, and then two sections of Deuteronomy 6. As I said before, this is a passage that we all know fairly well. It's the passage that marks the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and it starts in the following way. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so what he is doing is quite clear. Matthew is keen on creating a narrative structure intended to mirror Israel's origins as a nation. Much in the same way that Jesus in the infancy narrative that we read through the holiday season moves from Israel into Egypt, the people of God will move also to Egypt, attempting to find food and solace. And in the same way that the people will cross that liminal space at the edge of the Red Sea, being baptized in the waters, Jesus will be baptized at Jordan. In the same way that Matthew will have Jesus coming down from a mountain saying, you have heard it said, but now I say unto you, Moses will descend from a mountain carrying the tablets of the law. And so Jesus's life is intended to be a microcosm of the life that is experienced by Israel in its early history. So I want you to keep that in mind as you think about where Jesus is being moved the same spirit that has descended mightily upon Christ and said, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased, now will lead Jesus into the wilderness. Imagery, no doubt intended to replicate the desert dwelling experience of the people of God all the way back in Exodus. This wilderness wandering will last for 40 days in the same way that Israel's Voyage in the desert will last 40 years. But at the outset, a question 
a question that puzzles and myths both Old Testament scholars and New Testament readers alike jumps out of the page. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. Is it possible that Jesus is placed in the desert to be tested and tempted by the Spirit? Does God place perils and pitfalls in our journeys in order to see how strong we are spiritually? Is Israel's desert-dwelling experience and the death of a whole generation a result of their inability to meet up to the expectation that God has for them as he delivers a test? Not quite. I want you again to read the outset of our story carefully and note something. Jesus is led to the wilderness by the Spirit in the same way that Israel is moved into the desert by the Spirit. But the Spirit, the wilderness isn't only a place for testing. As we read throughout the story of Exodus, the wilderness is a place for providential care experienced in the manna that comes down from heaven. It is a period of in a place for guidance, as the cloud and the pillar of fire will indicate. It is also a place of revelation, as we will find when Moses delivers the tablets of the law. And so Jesus is moved into a space of providential care, a place for revelation, and a moment, an instance in time to be led by the God who gives us all good things. To be tr- fair, we who live in and by the Spirit will never be led by the Spirit into tests or temptations. But the Spirit will lead us into confrontations. Let me make that clear. God doesn't lead you into temptation, but a Spirit-filled life will move into confrontations. Because As followers of Christ, we will have to face evil square in the eye and recognize it, name it, and actively oppose it. And this is what's going on in our story. Forty days pass. Forty days intended to replicate, as we said before, Israel's experience in the wilderness. And at the end of the 40 days, Jesus hungers. Jesus is going to be attacked by the tempter in in the moment of most weakness. He hungers, and this is what happens. The tempter, verse 3, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, Eugene Boring, New Testament scholar, notes something very interesting about this particular verse and the verses that are to follow. The word that in your Bible is translated as if, that conditional clause, is actually a translation of the Greek clause a. But a can also be translated as since. Boring and I prefer this translation. See, it's not that the tempter is questioning Jesus's credentials as the son of God, actually Jesus is is going to have to respond to the implications of his status. As such, these temptations are not simply ways in which the devil will cause Jesus to question who he is. 
The word diabolos, where we get our word devil from in the Greek, denotes this root. And the root is uh, verbal, the verbal notion of to split. It's interesting that the early Greeks and the writers of the New Testament understood that the primary role of Satan is to split relationships apart. And what better way to split the relationship that God has with his son than by asking about the implications of said relationships? And so we ought to prefer Boring's translation, since you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. At the outset, the enemy of the souls is asking Jesus to confront that thing that makes us most nervous. Dependence. And we try and believe that we are autonomous, independent, individuated. The idea and the imagery in our American pop culture of the man or the woman that needs no one feeds this myth. And here, here Jesus is being asked about dependence. But there's also something else that is hidden in the temptation, this idea of transforming boulders into bread. And that is this. It's a temptation to overfunction. You know, Jesus, you've been led into the desert to confront and face evil and look it in the eye. But is there more you can do? Won't you overfunction? Won't you produce water from the desert and bread from boulders? My dear friend, how often you and I are tempted to overfunction, to take these stones that we receive and work ourselves to death attempting to bake bread. How often we experience anxiety, fear, weary, exhaustion, burnout, because we are attempting to overfunction. The idea of dependence is this notion that if we rely on the God that will supply all our needs, we can resist. This desire to overfunction. But in order to resist this desire to overfunction, we must rethink our paradigm. Now, typically, we function under a paradigm of limited resources. The idea of death constantly knocking at our door creates imagery in our minds of scarcity, and scarcity, let's face it, produces fear. If you are the Son of God, overfunction, control your environment, feed and nourish yourself. Now, to be fair, there's nothing wrong with the notion that we ought to produce food. Jesus will do it himself. But the question is, are we willing to leverage our resources and place them at the service of God? Or are these idols, idols that we continue worshiping because we have these ideals of scarcity and individuality? So Jesus answers 
And Jesus answers by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let me read to you the verse in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors have known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so what is Jesus pointing at? He is pointing on this idea that fear and scarcity evaporate when we are fed by our real by a realization that is rich in the knowledge that we depend not on what we have but on the one we know so if jesus is being tempted at his weakest at this idea of hunger and fear and scarcity of individuality and a temptation to overfunction where does the devil move next well, the way that Matthew presents these temptations is a little different than Luke. You see, Jesus is moved then by the devil to the holy city. In verse 5, it says that he was standing on the highest point of the temple. Again, since you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. If Satan cannot tempt Jesus to be carnal, maybe he can entice him to be fanatical. If he can't move towards self-reliance, then maybe, maybe he can point to complete abnegation. If material things won't suffice, maybe he can appeal to his sense of fanaticism. Throw yourself down, Jesus. He will quote scripture. It's interesting that the places that Satan uses and finds to tempt us are both our weakest places, i.e. Jesus' hunger, and our strongest places, i.e. Jesus' spirituality and his knowledge of scripture. Because Satan knows, my dear friend, that the places and spaces that you are strongest in are typically places that you don't look at. They're things that you don't reinforce. And so the devil quotes scripture to him. And he says, throw yourself down. Why is, what is he trying to say? Well, again, the question is, since you are the son of God, and incarnation and death and resurrection seem to be plans that have been accepted by God, then prove it. Throw yourself down. Show us that God will take care of you. After all, there is scripture. And in that moment, Jesus again quotes. He quotes this time from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He quotes from a section that is given to Israel right after they receive the Ten Commandments. And as he is quoting, an image begins to form clear in our minds. Because the temptation is always there to have God follow us. To leap into 
the abyss, believing that God will follow us. And Jesus will tell him, the tempter, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Because the key of the disciplined life, the key of your discipleship journey is not to have God follow you, but rather for you to follow God. How does Jesus respond to this use of Scripture? He uses Scripture itself to counteract. He doesn't appeal to a historical critical methodology that seeks to get behind the text. He doesn't dismiss the text. Instead, he chooses to utilize Scripture to testify against itself. And that ought to be an important nugget for you to take with you. As you debate and doubt, what does your life look like? How do you respond to temptations? How do you function amidst amidst crisis? Won't you take scripture to testify against itself sometimes? Won't you rely on the reality that we are called to allow ourselves to be led by God instead of trying to lead God? And so we get to the third act in this temptation concierto. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. There's an interesting thing that Matthew is doing with us as he is reading these stories. You see, the Spirit, the Spirit is leading Jesus down. First, Jesus is led down into the Jordan. Then, as he is surveying the valley, he is led down into baptism. His ministry affirmed, he is led down into the wilderness. And what does Satan do? Ah, well, Satan seeks to lead you up. First, bread into boulders, then a little bit higher at the pinnacle of the temple, and now at the highest point of earth. You see, often we forget to understand that the way the world measures and views reality is starkly different than the way God views reality. Here, Jesus has a view, a wondrous image of what the whole world looks like. And it must have been majestic, gleaming buildings, marbled temples, towers, order, Roman civilization in all of its splendor and majesty. But you know what is forgotten? The millions of stories, the pain, the cries, the empty stomachs, the tired hands, the sick, the dead and the dying. Those cries and those images are not seen from the vantage point that the devil takes Jesus to because in order to see these, you need to have a view from below. And that's the difference between the spirit and the devil throughout these temptations. But here he is, and he is telling them, let's take the easy way out, Jesus. You don't need the cross. You don't need to suffer ignominy, shame, 
You don't need to be led not only down, but to the very depths of hell. I, I can give it to you all. So if the first temptation is the temptation to overfunction, and the second temptation, well, the second temptation is to have God follow us, then the third temptation becomes to give ourselves blindly into our work, to believe that the mission is the Messiah. I'm sure that Jesus considered it for a moment. After all, the text is clear. He was tempted. And I'm sure in his mind, in his mind, he could see, he could see all the relief that he could bring. The different policies that could be instituted, the different ways in which he could provide joy and peace, a kingdom, a kingdom, a kingdom that would take the best things of Roman legality, the highest thoughts of Greek philosophy, the ethical framework of Judaism, mix it all in and provide a kingdom of justice and mercy for all. But the mission isn't the Messiah. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that Ethicist and theologian asks the question about what we do. He says that when it comes from God, our mission always does two things. It brings honor to God, first and foremost. And it brings dignity to our neighbor. In the first and second temptation, no honor is being brought to God, no dignity to the neighbor. But again, the tempter, wily as he is, adjusts. In the third temptation, there is a sense of, or at least a promise of dignity restored. But without honor to God, it is a mere idol. An empty shell, a shadow of that which God wants to gift you. Again, Jesus will quote Deuteronomy 6 in the Shema. He says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only with all your heart, with all your mind and with all your soul. Stanley Hauerwas, theologian and writer, talks about this idea, this idea that is found both in Deuteronomy and in the New Testament. This idea of reacting and resisting the power and the force of temptations. He says that Satan is the name we give to our impatience. Whether it be our need to satiate our food, our need to believe that God is really with us, or a need to fulfill our perceived mission, it's always impatience. So what is Jesus telling us here? What is Deuteronomy trying to remind us? What is the primary problem that the people of God get into? What is the temptation that they cannot overcome and the one that Jesus overcomes now? It was a beautiful song sung by the Taze community in France. 
It's entitled, Wait on the Lord. And the undergirding thought behind that song is that God requires patience. So I don't know if the Spirit has led you to confront evil, to look at darkness straight in the face and you are experiencing a season of temptation. If that's the case, then wait in the Lord. But please, don't take the easy way out. Don't transform boulders into bread. Stay with the bread of life. Don't force God to follow you down a mountain. Allow him to dwell in your heart. Recognize that the mission isn't the Messiah. That the Messiah is the one who has called you to be his son and his daughter. Dostoevsky, that Russian writer, he takes this imagery in a book entitled The Grand Inquisitor. It's a book about a cardinal and how the cardinals believe that what Christ offers is too ethereal. People need bread, security, safety, assurance. People need systems and structures. So the cardinal the cardinal throws Jesus into jail. And over a night, he questions him. And in the way that, and only the way that Dostoevsky can write, the cardinal, you can almost sit in the cell with these two figures as the cardinal loses his temper. Until, until he's done. He's done with his query. And exasperated asks Jesus to respond. Christ does nothing except stand up and kiss, kiss that old cardinal. Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus is the one and the only one who is patient and long-suffering. Because Christ prioritizes love. May love see you through your season of temptation, your desert-dwelling experience, and your wilderness wandering. Joey, uh, ex Deuteronomy in the New Testament. Yeah, wow. I, I loved this, this, um, this lesson in the Sabbath School Guide because, again, like we talked about last time, it shows how much the New Testament owes to the Old Testament, how much, especially the book of Deuteronomy, how much theology is drawn from that Old Testament into the New. And so really to understand the New Testament, you, you sort of need to have a clear primer of the Old Testament. Um, so I, I love that, that, the fact that the uh, biblical writers always draw from the language of the past to describe the present. And and how in this passage, Matthew does that in a masterful way. You described um, how Jesus is, the way that Matthew writes Jesus's narrative is to mirror the wanderings of, um, of Israel or the journey of Israel from Egypt 
to the promised land. And Jesus seems to be doing that here as well. Um, is that Matthew's way of sort of saying Jesus redeemed their journey? Like they made all these mistakes, but Jesus does it in the way that it was supposed mm -hmm. to happen if they had trusted him completely. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's, I think, absolutely what, uh, what Matthew's trying to do. We know that Matthew was intended or written um, to a primarily Jewish community mm -hmm. trying to make sense of their world after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so the question becomes, well, who are we now? And have we completely failed? Yeah. And there, I think, Matthew writes this wonderful tale that mm. is intentional about mirroring this journey. Mm. And not only mirroring the journey, but the places, this idea of sacred space, which is huge in Matthew, right? The idea of mountaintops, which will happen throughout his, he will use that, that imagery throughout his gospel to point out that uh, the same experience, the same Mount, quote unquote, mountaintop experiences that led Israel to faith have now been, have now been fulfilled in the one who is the new Israel, who is mm -hmm. capable of keeping covenant, but who also is uh, able to include not just Israel in the covenantal promises, but the whole world. Yeah. So he, he starts there, starts with Israel, but then expands it out to the whole world. Yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah. So then as, as Matthew is, is taking this journey through um, the wilderness wanderings, um, you point out that he that the Spirit leads Jesus in the wilderness, not so much into temptation, but to provide care and guidance and revelation, which was so powerful to me. Is there something about being in the wilderness that makes us more open to the care, the guidance, and revelation of God? Do we need wilderness wanderings in order to experience that more fully? I don't know. What, what would I, you say? I think you do, right? Because yeah. you're going to have moments of crisis, not because the Spirit is moving you there, but because that's your life, yeah. right? That's existence. So I think... What Matthew, is, what Matthew is doing, mirroring Deuteronomy there, is asking a question about the lens with which you look at the experience. So you can look at the generation that perishes in the desert and you can say, we failed. Mm -hmm. Or you can look at the, the generation that received a new revelation from God in the Ten Commandments, that received providential care from God in Deuteronomy 8 with the manna and that received revelation and that received not only revelation and providential care, but that also received direction from God, very clear and concise direction as they're being literally led by a pillar of fire and a cloud. Um, and so the question becomes, how, what lens are you using to look at this moment of crisis? Because if you look hard enough, you'll see that the spirit that is leading you into the wilderness to face temptation mm. um, is also allowing you to come out of that experience with a new understanding of how God cares for you, who God is, and where God is leading you to. Wow. So the Israelites, they're, they're wandering for 40 years because they failed, right? They failed to trust in God fully and enter into the promised land when he called them to. But what you're saying is that Jesus almost reframes that experience to say, yes, it was a moment of failure that inspired this, but it was also became a moment of growth, of learning, of care, of revelation of who God is. And that, that was a powerful healing experience for the Israelites. 
Yeah, it, it, it allowed them, right? And, and I think this is why Jesus is so masterful in reappropriating the story. Mm. Um, because it allowed, without the 40 years, you don't have the Shema, right? Mm. The Shema is God's response to their failure. So this idea of hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. That is God's direct response to their failure. And in quoting that and in interweaving that to Jesus's experience, which is not one of failure, it's one of victory, mm-hmm. it almost reappropriates the narrative and it allows you to stumble upon this great reality that is Regardless of how many failures your individual story has, the moment where where Christ becomes part of that narrative, the whole of the story changes Mm -hmm. from a history of failure to a history of, as we've said here before, quoting uh, Gerhard von Rad, to a history Mm -hmm. of salvation. And so I think that what Jesus is doing is not just redeeming the world. He's redeeming the story in the Old Testament and mm. reappropriating it from a history of failure to one of great victory. Wow. It's powerful how Jesus does that turnaround that takes failure and transforms it Isn't into it? Yeah. into victory. But does that mean then that failure is necessary? Do we need failure in order to grow like that? Or is it possible if if the Israelites had done everything right, if Adam and Eve hadn't failed, could they have gotten that revelation of God in other ways? What would you say? Yeah, I think I think it is possible. I mean, I think it is possible. Um, I don't want to sound Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, and that's an inside joke for you theologians <laughs> out there. Um, but I think it is possible. I don't. I don't know how valuable it is to to ask the question of what would have happened had mm. we never sinned, because after all, we sinned. Yeah. And once we sinned, I think Augustine. Augustine is is very bright in in trying to frame okay well what now (laughs) and so he says look this is our lot in life Mm. and so this idea of sin is merely a distortion of the good that god had intended for you so without the good you don't have the sin Mm. um so it so now what we have to do is we have to instead of say well where did we how did we mess up and why and, and this this enormous guilt that comes with kind of going down that journey augustine invites you to say what images or what call that god has placed upon your life is now being distorted mm-hmm. and in in answering where those distortions are to life augustine thinks that you can pinpoint where the sin is. And then he says, you can do the same thing that Jesus did, which is reappropriate the Mm. story. So in Jesus, you see this in in Matthew 4, there's the distortion isn't with bread and and, and stones. There's nothing wrong with creating. I mean, Jesus is going to do that in the same gospel. He's going to replicate uh, loaves and fish, right? Um, so that's not the problem. The problem is believing in our own individual self-sufficiency mm. and in, in that belief that leads us into overfunctioning. And so this distortion of this good thing that God created, which is work and our ability to be sufficient, mm. um, is being now distorted into believing that you can be completely self-sufficient and that you can be consumed by work. And so Jesus takes that distortion mm. 
reappropriates it like you've been saying and gives you something new, which is, I think, masterfully done. Mm. And it's something that Deuteronomy was trying to do millennia before. Yeah. So it's not that failure is inevitable, although now that we're in sin, that's the reality of our lives, that we will fail in our lives. We will sin in our lives. Um, it's not that sin had to be inevitable. It's it's that now that we are in that reality of living in sin, now what? Mm-hmm. And now what is allowing God to reframe those failure experiences, even those moments where we sin, to bring something good? Um, you know, in staff worship this week, um, Randy, I remember he said something about how God doesn't waste any opportunity, mm-hmm. right? Like he uses every opportunity. And we see that over scripture, throughout scripture. Even when people work outside of his plan, he sometimes somehow reappropriates that to do something good, to accomplish something good. So if we just give him the opportunity to reframe our mistakes, our failures, God can bring good out of even those. Yeah, that's beautifully said, Joey. I think it's an important, and I think that's an important step to take. Hmm. Um, We spend way too much energy saying if or or asking ourselves the if question. Hmm. By the way, uh, there was a National Institute for Accidents and Emergencies conducted this little research. It was really really interesting, I thought. Um, For some reason, I've been reading accident reports. Um, And when you're in like a crisis, right, very much like we can call it a desert dwelling cycle or a wilderness wandering or a crisis or a bout with temptation, whatever you want to call it, um, there's something that defines the people that are able to make it out and to mm-hmm. reframe and to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to survive and, and those who don't. And that difference is intimately intimately linked with the type of questions they ask. Mm. So the people that ask the why question, like mm. why did I fall off a mountain? Mm. Why did I, my boat capsize? Why me? Those people tend not to do as well as the people that say, well, I'm in it now. What do I do? How do I, how do I develop a plan and how do I make that plan adaptable? And so I think Often, I, I remember being a younger believer and, and just being mad at Adam and even saying, God, if they only had not messed up. Well, the reality is that they did mess up and that we all messed up. And so instead of like spending time saying, oh, man, how can I ensure that I'm not going to make a mistake? Mm-hmm. And we invest, a, and we all know people that invest maybe too much energy doing that. The question of mistakes are going to be made. How do I allow Jesus to speak into those mistakes? I think mm-hmm. is a is a much better uh, predictor of spiritual survival and not spiritual burnout or or mm-hmm. the drive to judgmentalism or fanaticism or um, other or guilt or shame that that sometimes we that that cycle that we that we find ourselves enmeshed in. Wow. You know, actually what what you're saying reminds me of. So um, I've been watching this show called Lost in Space on Mm. Netflix. And 
Um, there's this one episode where the father is teaching his daughter. She's about to go camping. He's, he tells her three things that she needs to know for the wilderness. One is don't leave food out because animals will be attracted. Two, put out the fires because humans cause the majority of wildfires. And then he says, the unexpected will always happen. Mm-hmm. Don't ask why. Just ask yourself, what next? Mm-hmm. What do I? What can I do and what should I do next? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly what you're saying, and that's exactly what God seems to be leading um, the Israelites through is, yes, you messed up. Yes, um, there was some failure. How can this be redeemed to bring some about something good? God is always working towards mm-hmm. redemption. God is always working towards the healing of his people. Isn't that what is so amazing about these two stories that both Deuteronomy and Jesus in, in Matthew 4 are looking forward? Mm-hmm. They're, they're not looking back. And one of one of the nuggets, and I, I don't know if Boston Space got this from, by the way, for those of you who don't know, it's a wonderful little series. There's new episodes now on Netflix. Netflix is not paying us for this, by the way. <laughs> um, but if you go to any wilderness survival school, and I, uh, I don't love the outdoors, so I thought maybe I'll pay some money and learn how to like properly build a fire in a tent. And, and um, I, I go to this to this weekend experience in this wilder, quote unquote wilderness survival school. And I'm thinking I'm going to come out um, being a completely competent out, outdoorsman, which I'm not. But it did lead me with a nugget that I that has now become one of the bedrocks mm. for my theology. Uh, the instructors have kind of this mantra that you will hear in any wilderness survival school that that you go to. And the mantra is do the next right thing. <laughs> That's all that they're at. Don't yeah. think about the future. Don't think about how you get out, how you got into this. Don't actually think about how you're going to get out. Uh, reframe your paradigm. You're not lost. You're here. Yeah. And so get busy doing the next right thing and i think that's all we can do i think that's what that's what's so powerful about this passage that jesus is just interested in getting invested in doing the next right Mm -hmm. thing yeah and and you have boys so i don't know how familiar you are with frozen 2 but that's also the mantra from from that movie right is um Actually, I think one of the songs is called "Do the Re- the the oh, Next really? Right Thing." So, yeah, so that 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 mantra that to move forward, to take the next step, right, um, is so is so powerful, um, and and that's what Jesus seems to be modeling for the Israelites here. Um, he's showing them, you know, when they encounter these kinds of um, attacks in the future, these kinds of temptations or opportunities in the future how not to act into, for example, like you said, into overfunctioning, um, which I thought was a powerful um, lesson that you drew from that first, first temptation, that the fact that Jesus not only, um, it, the problem is not what Jesus, whether Jesus makes food or not, like you said, because later on Jesus does make food, right? The problem is whether Jesus is stepping into a space that God has not called him to. Mm-hmm. Right? It's got, he's he stepping out of the bounds of what God has called him to. And a lot of times we, we think that if we can do it, why don't we do it? Right? 
But there are bounds and limits that God says that it's important for us to observe, that there are times that that um, we shouldn't cross over, even if it's to do a good thing, there are times that we shouldn't overfunction. So let me ask you, Miguel, how do we know those lines? How do we know those lines and how do we know whether we are overfunctioning? How do we know whether we are going out of the bounds of, of, of um, dependence on God? Mm. So I'm going to go back to this wilderness survival and then I'm going to go to Jimmy Buffett. Wow. Uh, not Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett's the same word. Warren Buffett. Oh, Warren Buffett. Um, there's really not that much that we can glean from country music. <laughs> no offense to those of you who like country music. You know, there's like 70% of our country. I know, country but it's music really fans. formulaic, man. Like you lose your, your, your girlfriend or your boyfriend and you lose your pet and you lose your truck and then you're trying to regain him. It's formulaic. So I don't, I guess... I guess I take it back. I guess there is one good thing to glean from country music. That's be relentless in getting back those things you <laughs> lost. But other than that, I don't know how much we can we can actually extract. But Warren Buffett uh, was asked, well, how do you spend your day? And I mean, this man is managing hedge funds. He's, he's one of the busiest and most awful entrepreneurs, I think, that we've had over the past hundred years. And Buffett had this really interesting response in, in an article that, uh, in an interview that he was uh, given. He says, I spent about, I spend about 40% of my time in self-growth, self-care, and self-leadership activities. Hmm. Think about it. 40% of Buffett's hmm. time is actually invested looking inward. Hmm. And so I think overfunctioning happens when you cease to engage in this in this practice of self care. Hmm. Um, Sabbath, I think, is is kind of God's ultimate reminder not to overfunction. Hmm. I think that's the first thing. Now, conversely, I'm in this wilderness training thing, and the second thing that I, that that I learn is. Not only are you supposed to be concerned with doing the right thing, but you are supposed to be working at 60% of capacity. Because when you work at more than 60% of capacity mm -hmm. in the outdoors, yes, fatigue settles in. And fatigue doesn't go, it's a mental state. Mm -hmm. And it robs you not just of your, emo of your physical energy, but it, it robs you of your emotional vi vitality. And once cognitively you're robbed of that, uh, you get in really bad spaces. So they say the most important thing that you can do trying to survive a crisis is rest, rehydrate, rest, rehydrate. If you're outdoors mm. and you're sweating, you're lost and you're sweating, you're working too hard. Wow. And so those two, I just found fascinating how one of them is saying 40% of my time I'm dedicating towards self-care. And in a real and in a real life and death issue, they're telling you, don't operate at more than 60% capacity. Mm. And so I think both of these things may start to outline at least some words, some of uh, the borders that we need to guard against overfunctioning, right? Take, make sure that you take care of yourself. Mm. Make sure that you're investing in yourself mm -hmm. and in what God has called you to be. And then allow some space, allow, you know, work at 60% to allow some space for God 
to, to speak into your life. Uh, that's why monks spend time in prayer. That's why uh, mm. they, they go out and they meditate. That's why uh, Christian writers, the whole world around, uh, spend time in reflective prayer because wow. there's something that happens when you allow, when you hold space for God to fill. Wow. Wow. This is so powerful. You know, that reminds me of um, this this phrase that comes from Japan called harahashibu. I'm probably, you know, murdering it. But um, it, it came from that Oprah special about blue zones, which Loma Linda is a blue mm-hmm. zone. But they also discovered that Okinawa, Japan, is is also a blue zone. And part of the reason why it's a blue zone is because they have this, this principle that they've, they had of hashibu. They stop eating when they feel 70% full. Mm. That's when they stop. Because eventually, when if you think you're 70% full, you're actually 100% full is what they've discovered. Mm. And so, um, you know, it three different domains, the domain of um, food and diet, the domain of um, business and finance, and the domain of um wild um, uh, wilderness, um, you know, training, they are all speaking to this truth that seems to say humans are not supposed to be operating at max capacity all the time. And the domain of scripture, as you pointed out, Sabbath, is that clear reminder that one-seventh of your time at least should be a period of rest, mm-hmm. of a period of rejuvenation. And they talk about this in sports at all, all the time. Um, it's not just how hard you work out, but it's also how how well you rest that really recharges you and it enables you to grow and, and to improve that cycle of that rhythm of rest and work um, that is so crucial. And and yet that seems to fly in the face of this this idea. Oh yeah, we're gonna work hard and play hard, mm-hmm. right? This mantra that we say to ourselves that we just need to max maximize our consumption and maximize our work, um, and yet that leads us to overfunctioning, to going beyond the bounds and the limitations who who God created us yeah, to be. It's it's our ultimate uh, attempt to make bread out of out of boulders. Mm. So. Today I've I've confused Jimmy and Warren Buffett, and Jimmy's uh, Jimmy and Warren have also heard how Joey has uh, completely completely murdered the Japanese language. So before we get into any trouble, uh, Joey, will you pray us out? Yes. Good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for being God, so that we don't have to be. Sometimes we think we are, we think we have to be, think we want to be. And yet the reality is that we're not, we're not God. So we don't have to work as if we were God and as if everything depended on us. Give us that humility, but give us that sense of perspective in our lives so that we can trust and rest in you is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember, friend, don't overfunction. Let God lead and differentiate your work from the one who has given you your call. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.